Well, good morning, church. We've uh, got a great portion of scripture today. In your Bible, you can open it to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And today, we're going to continue looking at the letters to the seven churches. We're now on to the fourth church that Jesus spoke to, and that is the church in Thyatira. And we sort of out of a consistent pattern so far in our teachings through the seven churches, and so we're going to stick to that. First, what I'm going to do is give a little bit of historical and cultural background about the city of Thyatira because it helps us to understand what the church was going through. Then we're going to read the letter that Jesus wrote to this particular church, and in that letter, Jesus will introduce himself with certain attributes that will be relevant to what that church was going through. Then we're going to see what the church was commended for and, of course, what the church was corrected for. And then finally, we're going to wrap it up with a promise that Jesus gives to those who overcome through faith. So you guys all ready for that? Awesome. Before we continue, I do want to say how grateful I am to be in a church where people have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. I've been receiving so many encouraging words and just feedback as you've been listening to the letters to the seven churches, and it, it encourages me to know that this is a church that wants to hear what Jesus says, whether it is the encouraging and the uplifting parts, which we've seen in this series so far, or even the hard things, the, the parts that have made us examine ourselves because we know that Jesus has our best interest, right? Do you know that? And we believe that when Jesus corrects us, which by the way, five out of the seven churches in Revelation have correction, which tells us that more often than not, we need to change. And we believe that correction is for our good because what Jesus is doing is he is preparing for himself a pure and spotless bride. And he is refining us in our faith as we walk together with him. Speaking of refining, you know when gold is heated up, it's, it's that the impurities rise to the surface so that they can be pulled up. And, and so we know that as sort of God's word sort of heats us up, it's that the refiner, who is God, is purifying us like he is purifying gold. And you know how a refiner knows when the gold has been purified? is when he can look and see his own reflection in the gold. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing with us. He wants to see his reflection in us. He is purifying his church so that we would look more and more like Jesus. And so as we enter into this this morning, I'm going to just start here with some background on the city of Thyatira. And you know that when the letters came from the island of Patmos, where John received them, directly from Jesus, they made their way to Ephesus. And then from Ephesus, we made our way up the Mediterranean coast until we arrived in Smyrna. Then we kind of cut across inland, following something of a postal route, and we landed in Pergamum, which was a city upon a hill. Now, if you were to travel 35 miles southeast from Pergamum, you would come to Thyatira. Now, this city, out of all the seven cities, is the one that we have the least amount of history for. Thyatira was a small town, not very influential. Um, there wasn't, you know, a lot really going on there, but there was a church there. 
And there's a few things that we can gather from history that might tell us about the cultural um, environment in which the church dwelled in. So just first off, the name of the city, Thyatira, it means sacrifice of labor. And this is going to tie in closely with the encouragement, the commendation that Jesus gives to the church. And historical records show that by the third century, this small town of Thyatira had grown significantly because it started as a small town of very hard-working people, sort of the working class. And over time, this working class grew in prosperity and size because they sort of became like a manufacturing capital of Asia Minor. One of the main things that we know about the city is that it had these trade guilds. And a guild was just a group of trade workers, something that we would call a union today. And so they had the Carpenters Guild, and they had the Blacksmith Guild, and the Gold Guild, and the Bakers Guild, and so forth. And one of the largest guilds in the city of Thyatira was that of fabrics and dyes. In fact, there was a purple dye that was produced in the city of Thyatira that was used for making expensive clothing. If you saw someone wearing purple back then, you knew that person was wealthy. And so in fact, if you remember Paul's missionary journey, he came to the city of Philippi. And one of the first people that came to faith in Jesus through Paul's preaching at Philippi was a woman named Lydia. And does anyone remember where Lydia was originally from and what she did for a living? Acts chapter 16, verse 14 tells us this, that Lydia was from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. And so we're told that this woman, Lydia, was very wealthy. We also see that she had a bit of a persuasive way about her, and she told Paul to come to her house and to continue to preach the kingdom. And so perhaps it was this woman, Lydia, who made her way back to her hometown of Thyatira and brought the gospel of Jesus with her. And it was from this woman that maybe the gospel spread to that city. We can't know that for sure, but what we can from the information that we have, we can gather that out of this poor, small town through their hard work and through their determination, they grew in prosperity and size. And so we can assume that this actually would have been true for the church as well. The church started out small, but had grown significantly over time because of their hard work. But you know, when the church grows, not everything that grows up along with it is good. Jesus taught a parable in the Gospels. This parable that he said, a, true, a, a tree grew out of a mustard seed. A mustard seed is basically the tiniest little seed you could find. And this massive tree growing up from this tiny seed. And Jesus said that there were birds that made their nests within the big tree. Now, if you were to take the parable of the soils, which is sort of the, the key to unlocking all the other parables, we see in that parable that the birds represent Satan. And so when Jesus says that from a small seed grows a great big tree, and in that tree, 
There are birds that make their nests there. It seems to suggest that Satan seeks to infiltrate and corrupt the things that God is growing. See, the enemy loves to embed himself in places where God is producing growth. Church, do we have ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to his church? Well, let's see what Jesus writes to the church in the city of Thyatira. In Revelation chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 18 to 29. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that these are your words. Words that are living and active, they're sharper than any two-edged sword, they're able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to know the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And God, I pray that your word would go forth with great power this morning, that Holy Spirit, you would take your word and put it within our hearts, Lord, and I pray that this morning in this church, there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I pray for those who are in Christ Jesus that there would be conviction. There would be conviction of sin that would lead to repentance. And from that place of repentance, God, you would pour out your grace like rain. Jesus, refresh our souls. We need it always. Teach us what you mean to say in your word. And Lord, how we can grow to be more and more like you in these days. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right, church. I think we can see that Jesus has a pretty big issue with sexual immorality in the church. 
If you were here last Sunday, this is almost like a part two of last week. But before we get to the correction, let's consider this first. I know that Jesus wants to reveal himself to us. That's why he gave us these letters. And he gave us these letters so that we can have a right and a healthy relationship with him. He, he loves us. And he wants us to love him. Jesus wants us to enjoy the relationship that he has called us into. And so Jesus first will highlight the areas in our lives where he's seeing good progress. We have a tendency, you know, to lose sight of the good things that God is working into us and the good things that God sees in us once we've been corrected. It's like once we hear the bad news, right, the things that need to change, then we sort of shut down. But listen, when Jesus corrects us, it's not so that he can defeat us. When Jesus corrects us, it's because he loves us and he knows that we can live pure and holy lives before him. He knows that as his disciples, we've even done it before. We've, we've lived in such a way that is pleasing to him and pleasing to us. You know, right now, I'm coaching my son's baseball team. Um, if you were caught on Crenshaw or PV Drive and saw a bunch of floats going down and you weren't able to get where you're going, I'm sorry, that was us. We had a float parade yesterday and it was awesome. But last week, we had our first practice and it was raining, so we actually held it right here in the, in the sanctuary. And we had this hitting net set up over here. And I was over there, and, and we were coaching this boy. And he said, I can't hit the ball. And I coached this kid last year, and I know he can hit the ball. I've seen him hit the ball before. And, and because I'd seen it, I said, hey, but you have a great swing. You know how to swing and make contact. I know you can do it. Try again and hit the ball. And so with a little attitude adjustment, a little repositioning of the hands, this boy just came through and bam, hit like five balls, one after another. And it's like, see, you can do it. And this is the sense that I get from Jesus as he's going through his letters. He's giving us the commendations. He knows that we're able to walk with him and live by faith in him. And yet there are things that need adjustments if we're going to hit the ball. And so today, the commendation will be proportionately less than the correction. But at least Jesus saw that there was something good happening in this church you know, next week we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Sardis, and he'll have nothing encouraging to say to them. You're like, honey, we should plan a trip for next weekend <laughs> and miss out on church, because right? But let's not forget this, that when Jesus corrects us, it's for our good, and it's not that he doesn't see our progress of faith. He's saying to us, keep doing the things that I see in you. I know you can live faithfully for me. So look with me at verse 18, and let's see how Jesus reveals himself to this church. He says, and to the, church, uh, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So the angel of the church 
received this letter, and upon opening it up, he reads that these are the words of the Son of God. And he automatically knows who the letter's from. The letter is from Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten from the Father. And it reminds me of what the Apostle John said in his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I love that verse because that verse tells us something about Jesus, the Son of God. It tells us that there are these two complementary qualities that he holds. Jesus is full of grace and he is full of truth. He offers both grace and truth in their completeness. You know, Jesus has this ability to, to show grace and truth in such a way that they do not contradict one another. We often struggle as the church to hold both grace and truth in that perfect tension. Sometimes we offer grace in such a way that it diminishes the truth. And sometimes we offer truth in such a way that it diminishes grace. It's why we need Jesus. It's why he is our perfect example, because Jesus has this perfect ability to embody both grace and truth in its fullness without contradiction. It's the most glorious thing when you're able to experience that. And I strive to offer that in my preaching. And when I preach God's word, there are moments when God brings his truth, and it's hard. But there's moments where God brings his grace, and it's so gentle and so kind. And so to be able to point people to both the grace and the truth in Jesus that does not contradict is something that I believe only God's two-edged sword is really able to do. It's why we teach God's word. Now in verse 18, it says that the Son of God wants the church in Thyatira to know something about him. He says, tell him, John, tell him that I am the one who has eyes that are like a flame of fire, and my feet are like burnished bronze. Now, how is this revelation of Jesus going to apply to the church in Thyatira and to us today? Jesus has eyes that are like a flame of fire, and he has feet that are like burnished bronze. So first, the Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire. We know that fire can be warm and comforting. We also know that fire can be hot and destructive. We're all taught from a very young age to respect fire. My son, just about two weeks ago, touched our fireplace and got blisters on his fingers. I don't think he's going to touch that fireplace anymore. See, when fire is feared or handled with caution, it can serve very good purposes. Drinking your tea, sitting by the fireplace, cooking some eggs in the morning, right? Heating up your coffee, whatever it is. Fire has great purposes. But we also know that when fire is played with, I almost burned my house down when I was a kid um, playing with fire. When fire is played with or when it's handled with carelessness, it can do great damage. So how might you perceive Jesus' eyes that are like a flame of fire? 
No matter what, these are eyes that are to be feared. Fire must be respected. But there's a difference between godly fear and ungodly fear. Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying? The Son of God also has feet that are like burnished bronze. Bronze was one of the hardest metals that you could find in those days. And to say that it was burnished metal meant that the metal was polished and pure. And so Jesus is speaking about his strength and his purity. And it's thought that, biblically speaking, bronze often represented judgment or destruction in the Bible, and so does fire. But it just depends on how you see the bronze and how you see the fire, because in one sense they can be seen as wonderful attributes, but in another way they can be fearful, terrifying attributes. And Jesus is essentially saying, my eyes and my feet are bringing pure judgment. I see you. I walk among you. I know what's going on. I can see it all, and I am a perfect and holy judge. Now, Jesus will say in verse 19 as a way to commend this church, and please listen to the encouragement that he gives to them. He says, I know your works your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So remember, the, the people in Thyatira, they were hard-working people. They were your simple, blue-collar, easy-to-get-along-with folk. Jesus saw their works that they had done to build their city and to build the church. And many of the believers in the church found work in the trade guilds of the city of Thyatira. And these Christians would bring the gospel of Jesus into their workplaces. They'd take Jesus into the guilds. However, the trade guilds were often associated with Greek gods and goddesses. Each guild had sort of a patron god that the guild workers would worship for their success in business. If business was going well, the patron God was pleased. If business was going bad, the patron God was not pleased. You better do something about it to keep that patron God happy. But the Christians who believed in God and in the Son of God, they were faithful to only worship Jesus in the workplace. See, Jesus saw that, and he saw more than that. The list of commendations goes on. He says they had love. And we've already studied this. Isn't for Jesus to say to a church, you have love? Isn't that the highest of commendations that Jesus can give? If that's all they had, that was a lot. Jesus says, I know your love. He's essentially saying, I know how you love God, and I know how you love others. Keep loving. Then he says, I know your faith. Jesus is saying, you believe in me. You believe that I'm the son of God. You believe that I died on a cross, and that I was buried, and that I rose again, and that I'm coming back for my church. You have faith. And because you have faith, I have shown you my grace. And then he says, you're a people of service. Jesus is saying, you serve God, you serve the church, you serve in community, you are actively engaged in helping others. I know that, and I like that about you. 
I like that you think about others before yourself. He says you have patient endurance. Jesus is saying, keep on keeping on. Sometimes the trade guilds would demand that their patron God be worshipped. Because Christians would not worship any other God but Jesus, they were often kicked out of the trade guilds for their faith. But if you were not part of a trade guild, it was, it was pretty much impossible to prosper in that city. And so this was a form of persecution. As I've said before, the workplace and finances is usually where persecution hits first and hardest. But the church in Thyatira was patiently enduring through that with love and with faith and with service. And then I love this final commendation. He says that your latter works exceed the first. That means that the church was growing in good works. When your latter works exceed your first, it means that they were, that they were spiritually growing as a church. And so these are great things that Jesus had to say to the church. These are perhaps things that Jesus would say to you today as an individual, or he'd say to us today as a church, Calvary Chapel, Palace Verdes. These are great things, things that we should take to heart, that Jesus sees them, he encourages them, and he says, keep on going. So be glad and thankful that Jesus sees your progress of faith that he knows that you want these qualities to be yours and increasing. But because Jesus loves us, and because Jesus is pure and holy, he has some correction to give as well. Verse 20, he says to the church, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So Jesus has this against the church. They were tolerating a woman who was a false teacher. Jesus calls her that woman Jezebel. We're told that she was seducing Jesus' servants, leading people in the church to practice sexual immorality, leading them to eat food that were sacrificed to idols, probably the idols of those trade guilds. We can't know for sure if there was actually a woman named Jezebel in the church. If so, that's probably a really bad name to name your kid. If you're choosing baby names and you search Bible names to name my daughter, Jezebel's not a good one. It'd be like naming your son Judas. Just not a good one. <laughs> and so, whether her name was Jezebel, we don't know, but it just seems that Jesus was using that name so that we would look back to that woman Jezebel from the Old Testament. Similar to how Jesus said to the church in Pergamum, you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, right? And everyone went back this last week and read Numbers chapter, I think 23, what was it? 23, 24, 25, 26. And I had one person say, I didn't see the part where it says Balaam taught this to Balak. That's in chapter 31. So you got, you got more reading to do. 
But if you go back to First and Second Kings, you're going to find out a lot about this Queen Jezebel. She was the wife of King Ahab. She was a Gentile who married a Jewish king. And she was pretty wicked. Like, not cool. Like, evil. She did a lot of things that you can read about, but one of the main things that she did that brought about great trouble upon Israel, not just while she was alive, but even long after she was gone, is that she introduced the worship of Baal to Israel. She introduced worship of Baal, who was this false fertility god who was worshipped through illicit sex. And she said this, She's like, I'm married to a Jewish king, and he believes in Yahweh, and I'm a Gentile queen, and I worship Baal. And she sort of comes in and says, you know, you can worship both the God of Israel, and you can worship Baal. And she taught that you can be a God-fearing Jew and still worship Baal. Have both. And the prophet Elijah was the one that God sent to deal with this false teaching. And there was this showdown that happened on Mount Carmel, which is definitely worth a read. And we're told that as the prophets of Baal came to face off with the single prophet of God, Elijah, it says that he told the people, how long will you dance between two opinions? If you're going to worship Yahweh, worship Yahweh. If you're going to worship Baal, worship Baal. God doesn't approve of your compromising. Stop dancing between two opinions. God does not approve of your tolerance for sin. He is a jealous God, and there shall be no other gods before him. Choose your God. And then God sent down a fire from heaven to consume that altar on Mount Carmel. And then as the prophets all fled, they were slaughtered at the base of the hill. Pretty gnarly. Now, in some way, there was a woman in the church at Thyatira seducing Jesus' servants. And Jesus said she is a self-proclaimed prophetess, but her teachings are false. By her teaching, she is seducing servants in my church to practice sinful behavior. Namely, they are practicing sexual immorality and they are eating food sacrificed to idols. And Jesus is saying to them, I am against that in my church and in my servants, and yet you are tolerating it. And the church is allowing all this to happen without there being any correction. And so Jesus says, then I'm going to come with my word and I am going to correct this woman's sin and I'm going to correct you who are tolerating her sin. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. I have that against you, church. Now look, scripture is abundantly clear and consistent. From Genesis to Revelation, that God is against sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, as I shared last week, is best defined by giving God's ordained design. Sex is to be enjoyed for the pleasure of procreation and pleasure, having fun and making babies. 
Sexes between one man and one woman who have vowed in a marriage covenant before God and any form of sexual activity outside of that God-given design, the Bible says it is immoral. And God is against immorality. He calls immorality sin. And look, people in the world don't like hearing sex and sin in the same sentence, do they? But again, Jesus isn't talking to the world here. Who's he talking to? To his church. And the church needs to get used to hearing sex and sin in the same sentence because it is an issue that has ravaged the church even from its inception. And Jesus has eyes that are like a flame of fire, and he can see all of your private sins. And sex in marriage is like fire in the fireplace. It is comforting, it is purposeful, it is pleasurable, it's to be enjoyed. God gave it as a gift to humanity. But sex outside of marriage is like fire burning through a forest. It is dangerous and destruction. And look, guys, I don't need to give a list of sexual sins for you to know that. And if Jesus is looking at you right now with eyes of flaming fire, what do you see? What do you need to see? Do you see truth or do you see grace? I think first you need to see truth in Jesus' eyes if you have been engaging in sexual sin. But you can repent today. And if you're willing to repent of sin, you will see eyes of grace. After seeing the fire of truth in Jesus' eyes, I pray that you're also able to see the fire of grace in Jesus' eyes. See, Jesus has spoken his truth about sexual immorality so that we would turn from it, so that we would be shown grace and forgiveness for our sexual immorality. And I'm going to tell you today, God can heal you. God can restore you if you have been caught up in sexual immorality. We have all seen new growth that comes after a forest fire. And it's beautiful. If you have a sexually immoral past, Jesus can bring beauty from the ashes. It is also clear all throughout Scripture how God can restore and rebuild and repair and redeem people who have been ravaged by sexual immorality. But what has to happen for God to restore and redeem is you need to repent. And repentance is not a scary word. All it means is to change your mind about your sin. You're hearing the word of God, which is truth. Forsake the truth that you have been believing that is actually lies and turn to the truth of Jesus. Change your mind about sin. Flee that teaching that says God is tolerating your sexual immorality Turn from that belief and turn from those practices and ask Jesus to teach you what it means to have a sexually moral life. 
that you would have a sexuality that will be pleasing to you and pleasing to God. And you can do that. You can repent today. God is willing and wanting for you to come to him. And when you do, you will experience experience something so much better than you're experiencing right now in sin. Jesus says in verse 21 that he is going to deal with that woman Jezebel. And this Jezebel type can apply to both men and women in the church. So if you think that Jesus is only talking to women this morning, you're wrong. Because both men and women can be seducing others sexually. Both men and women can hold to this sort of teaching that says, you can worship God and still have any kind of sexual lifestyle that you want. And Jesus says, no, I'm against that. He says this. You guys have heard truth. But, but Jesus has spoken truth so that he can say this to you. He's saying, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Church, when God calls us to repent, he is so patient with us. Can I get an Amen. Can I get another amen? Amen. (laughs) See, God gives us plenty of time to repent of our sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Plenty of time. He's so kind and forbearing. He waits for us to come to him. Part of the reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he's waiting for you. But knowing my God, he would have come to this woman Jezebel time and time and time again, giving enough time for her to repent, but she refused to repent. She was proud in her sin. And even though she had been corrected many times, she had sat through many sermons about sexual immorality. She'd been given plenty of times because of the patience and long-suffering of God to repent. She presumed that her sin would just be tolerated and that she didn't need to repent. Now look, isn't it the case for all of us that we don't repent of sin all at once, do we? Sometimes repentance takes time. I know that in the years that I've been walking with Jesus, I just passed up the years that I've been walking with Jesus that I wasn't walking with Jesus. So 17 years I didn't know Christ. I don't, I'm not good at math. I think it's 18 that I'm... 17 plus 18 is 35. Is that right? Okay, some, some math like that. I'm not great at math. That's why I'm a preacher. Um, <laughs> In all the years I've been following Jesus, do you think I repented all at once? Do you think the moment I came to Jesus, it was like, I fleed all sexual immorality? No. It's taken time. But I'm grateful that God has given me time to repent, and I'm thankful that in that time of grace I have repented. And sometimes I've needed to repent of something again because I thought I had victory over it, but it came back into my life, and guess what? I had to repent of it again. 
And once I'm done repenting of one thing, God shows me another thing that I need to repent of. Isn't that the worst? You're like, yes, I've got victory in this area. And it's like, Jesus is like, what about this? And he keeps showing us more and more of the things that we need to repent of. But we need to understand that our time to repent is limited. And if there is any known sin in our life that God has been calling us by his grace and mercy to repent of sin, but we are hardened to that and we're resisting and refusing to repent, that time has an expiration date. And so as God has revealed to me more and more the things that I need to repent of over time, I must respond to that call of repentance and not refuse his voice when he speaks to me. Every time I hear a message like this, I repent. Because repentance is not a one-time act, but it is an ongoing act of faith as we grow in Jesus. There are some people who have one visit to the cross, and they've never been back since. And so if you can't remember the last time you repented of sin, that is scary, That's terrifying. If you can't remember the last time you repented of sin, that's terrifying. It probably means that you have become comfortable in sin and you have become tolerant in sin and we cannot be tolerant in sin and refuse to turn to God when he corrects us. And God deals very gently and patiently with us, you guys. First, he deals privately with us. God's not calling you up to the platform here today to confess your sins to all of these people. All you have to do is tell him. Confess your sins. Confess means to say with God. Say with God that your sin is sin and turn from it. And he'd given many times privately and gently for this woman Jezebel to repent, but she kept refusing and Jesus says, okay, now I have to come and deal publicly with her. And because the church wasn't dealing with it, Jesus would deal with it himself. And listen, guys, Jesus isn't being mean to us here. Jesus is protecting his church from demonic seduction. I hope you hear that I am not trying to be mean to you this morning, but that as a shepherd of this church, I am seeking to protect this body from the birds that come and embed themselves and try to corrupt it from within. So look how, G- how serious Jesus sees this issue and how seriously we must deal with it. Verse 22 to 23. This is gnarly, you guys. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And, if all, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Is this the same Jesus that set children on his lap and blessed them? Is this the same Jesus that received those prayers of dedication for children this morning? Is this the same Jesus who spoke to the woman at the well? Is this the same Jesus who ate with prostitutes and tax collectors? Yes, but go look at any story of scripture where Jesus ministers to someone who was involved in a sexually immoral or idolatrous lifestyle and notice that he calls those people out of that. Verse 
He lovingly and gently and patiently ministers to them, but he calls people out of their sin and into fellowship with him. And Jesus at one point was brought a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. I always wonder why the man wasn't brought as well. But at least the woman was brought in the act of adultery. And this is what he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Now, do you think that that woman went from that day and she never once sinned again until she got to heaven? I don't believe that. But I think that there was a change in this woman's life where she went away and she received the truth and the grace from Jesus like she'd never experienced before. And those words, go away, sin no more, would again and again come to that woman's mind in moments of temptation. How many times did Jesus come to that woman Jezebel and yet she refused to repent? I believe it was many times. I believe that the church tried to deal with it, but she found a way to continue. She found a way to be tolerated in her sin, and it seems that she was masking her sin behind spirituality. And this is of the most deceptive kind, to mask your sin behind spirituality. I go to church. I read the Bible. She called herself a prophetess. Notice it was self-proclaimed. But she was a prophetess who was teaching others to sin. She was being proud in her sin, and that woman Jezebel would not repent to a gracious God. Therefore, Jesus said, I will throw her onto a sickbed. If she wants to defile a marriage bed, I will make her bed, and I will make it a sickbed. And from now on, anyone who has sex with that adulterous prophetess, anyone who commits adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. That does not sound good at all. Jesus is not messing around. He means what he says, and he says what he means, and he says, I will strike these sexual sinners with sickness unless they repent of their works. Notice, even in the threatening of the warning, he's giving another opportunity to repent. But if the church blows right past this truth of the grace of Jesus Christ, if her seducing servants refuse to repent of having sex with that woman, Jesus says, I will strike her children dead. And some have suggested that her children are the adult men and women who followed her teaching and engaged with her in sexual immorality and idolatry. But whatever it is, it's still gnarly. See, my goal in teaching verses 22 to 23 is not to explain it too much. Because in trying to explain a warning scripture too much, it can lose its impact. And sometimes we just need to become very sober and fearful of a warning like this. Rather than for the sake of tolerance, we seek to minimize the judgment that Jesus speaks here. What does he mean by children? What does he mean by sickbed? What's, what's the Greek word for strike? I'm not going to do that. If you need to heed the warning, then heed the warning. Repent if you need to repent. And Jesus is saying, I've given you time to do that. And the time is right now. Time is today. Don't wait. Don't harden your heart. 
In verse 23, Jesus says he will bring this judgment upon Jezebel and her followers. He says, I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. Jesus would make an example out of the church in Thyatira. He'd make an example to show how seriously Jesus deals with sexual sin and idolatry in his church. He searches his churches with flaming eyes. He walks among his church with burnished feet. But how tragic it is that many churches do not know that Jesus spoke these words. They avoid the corrective words of Jesus because they want to tolerate sin. You think I picked out this message? No. I want you to know today how these words of Jesus are full of grace and truth. I hope you hear them that way. I implore you today, if you need to repent, repent, so that you can be lavished by the grace of God. For the rest of you, verse 24 to 25, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have come until I come. If you feel a heavy burden upon you right now, because you're like, I don't do these sins, I don't tolerate these sins, but this is still a heavy burden to kind of hear. Do you think I'm like, whew, this is fun and light and fluffy? This is a heavy burden that I've been bearing all week to preach to you. And Jesus says, I give you no other burden for you to bear because you have not held to those that teach what are the deep things of Satan. What are the deep things of Satan? The deep things of Satan seem to be connected to what Jezebel was teaching. The deep things of Satan often sound like this. Yeah, you know that prude pastor, he says that, but let me explain what the Bible really says. And with seductive words, you are seduced into believing lies and you're drawn into practice their immoral practices. This week I was talking to a couple who was convicted by last Sunday's message and wanted to see if what I said from God's word was so, and so they went to TikTok to find out if sexual immorality is a sin or not. And they found a lot of conflicting information. And so they came back to church, praise God, and asked me, so is this a sin? And I said, yes, it's a sin. But we can walk with you and see you restored and see you move in a direction towards marriage. But if you're having sex before you're married to one another, by the grace of God, that needs to stop. And you can begin to move toward God's will and God's ways. And they said, okay. Praise the Lord. See, when we obey the grace and truth of Jesus, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And it's hard to live a sexually pure life in this culture, especially if you're not married. But you can hit the ball. You can hit the ball. Jesus has given you everything you need for a life of godliness. Don't settle for less.
He sees you. He knows you. He knows the way that you're being faithful to him. He sees your progress of love, faith, service, how you're patiently enduring. And Jesus says, I don't want to burden you. Only hold fast to what you have until Jesus comes. But don't fall for those deep, deep things of Satan. Friends, the time is coming soon when Jesus will come for his bride. So hold fast. And a letter is not complete without a promise. Amen? Verse 26 to 28, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. I wish I could elaborate on this, but this is a reference from Psalm 2. For those who are in Christ, we will rule and reign with Christ in his perfect kingdom. And in Jesus' perfect kingdom, there will be a perfect rule and reign of righteousness. There will be no sin in Jesus' kingdom. And anyone who tries to oppose in the millennial kingdom, they will be smashed like a pot with a wrought iron. And in heaven, the, the culmination of his kingdom, there will be no more sin, no more struggle. And then he says, I'll give you the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, Revelation 22, verse 16, the last chapter in the Bible tells us what the morning star is. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So when you overcome in this world through faith, when you overcome sin and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ through grace and walk with him, you will receive Jesus. Jesus is saying, you get me in the end. And to have Jesus is to have everything. Seek to obtain him, nothing more than him, nothing less than him. As the old hymn says, you can have it all. Just give me Jesus. That concludes our fourth letter to the churches. Let's pray. Verse 19, you say, Lord, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I thank you that this is a church that wants to hear what Jesus says. And... I pray, God, that this would be an opportunity this morning for people to repent so that times of refreshment come in your presence. You say in your word that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And Lord, you've come to judge our compromise and our tolerance because you love us. You discipline those whom you love. And so God, draw those people in We need you. We need to hold fast to you. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.